Welcome to the World Beyond the Tale, the Page Day American Gods podcast. I'm your host, James, and today we're reading page 227. This episode contains a brief discussion of rape and statutory rape. Hum of the refrigerator and somewhere in the building a radio plane. He lay there in the darkness wondering if he had slept himself out on the Greyhound, if the hunger and the cold in the new bed and the craziness of the last few weeks would combine to keep him awake that night. In the stillness, he heard something snap like a shot, a branch, he thought, or the ice. It was freezing out there. He wondered how long he would have to wait until Wednesday came for him. A day? A week? However long he had, he knew he had to focus on something in the meantime. He would start to work out again, he decided, and practice his coin slights and palms until he was as smooth as anything. Practice all your tricks, somebody whispered inside his head in a voice that was not his own. All of them but one, not the trick that poor, dead, mad Sweeney showed you, dead of exposure, in the cold, and of being forgotten, and surplus to requirements. Not that trick. Oh, not that one. But this was a good town. He could feel it. He thought of his dream, if it had been a dream, that first night in Cairo. He thought of Zoria, what the hell was her name? The Midnight Sister. And then he thought of Laura. It was as if thinking of her opened a window in his mind. He could see her. He could somehow see her. She was an eagle point in the backyard outside her mother's big house. She stood in the cold, which she did not feel anymore, or which she felt all the time. She stood outside the house that her mother had bought with, in 1989 with the insurance money after Laura's father, Harvey McCabe, had passed on. A heart attack while straining on the can, and she was staring in, her cold hands pressed against the glass, her breath not fogging it, not at all, watching her mother and her sister and her sister's children and husband in from Texas, home for Christmas. Out in the darkness, that was where Laura was, unable not to look. Tears prickled in Shadow's eyes, and he rolled over in his bed. Wednesday, he thought. And he was just a thought, and with just a thought, a window opened, and he was watching from a corner of the room in the Motel Six, watching two figures thrusting and rolling in the semi-darkness. He felt like a peeping tom, turned his thoughts away, willed them to come back to him. He could imagine huge black wings pounding. And that's our page. In previous reads, I've always wondered about the snapping sound in the night. Is this supposed to indicate something that we learn about later on in the book? I don't know that there's anything particular that this is referencing, more just reinforcing how damn cold it is out there. Shadow's not as tired as he thought he was, or at least his mind takes over and begins to wander a bit, and he starts by thinking about something I brought up a few pages ago. Just how long is he supposed to stay in Lakeside? In my mind, Wednesday doesn't let Shadow take the car, because if he did, then he'd be able to leave Lakeside. He wants Shadow in Lakeside because he should, in theory, be safe from the prying eyes of the spook show and media. Plus, if he has no transportation, he'll be more reliant on the people of Lakeside and will start blending in more. Shadow starts considering how he'll spend his time and falls back on his old hobbies, working out in coin manipulation. As he does, another voice enters his head and reminds him of the trick Mad Sweeney taught him. But the voice speaks oddly, at least by thinking surplus to requirements, which is not a super common phrase as near as I can tell. Even contextually, I couldn't completely wrap my mind around the phrase because it sounds so alien in my ears, though basically meaning unnecessary, redundant, or unwanted. In this moment, though, Shadow acknowledges something that Ibis hinted at on page 54. Gods can die through a lack of belief or simply by being forgotten, which I suppose are the same thing or at least similar enough that maybe I don't need to include them separately. He immediately pivots away from this internal voice and considers how good the town is, this seems wildly out of place, and I think this internal shift is worth remembering as we read on. Is this shadow changing his own mind, or is this like the suicidal impulses he felt in the House of the Dead? Is 
someone else or something else changing his mind. Shadow discovers a new ability, similar to how he could make it snow in Chicago. He can think of people and see a vision of them, where they are at the time he thinks of them. He starts with Laura, and we get a painfully poignant scene with her. I think that the part that really hits home is the lack of condensation on the windows as Laura looks in on her family. Or the spooky idea of not feeling the cold, but actually, in reality, feeling it all the time. Shadow then thinks of Wednesday and sees his boss having sex with a young waitress from before. This is at least rape, considering Wednesday used magic to seduce her into bed. It may also be statutory rape, as the age of consent in Wisconsin is 18 years of age, and every indication we got was that she was definitely not that old. Regardless, Wednesday is an absolute shitheel, and I feel like this portion of the book is something I had completely eliminated from my brain, and I think it's going to color the way I view him for the rest of the book. Shadow directs his mind away, concerned that he may be a peeping Tom, which is capitalized on the page. I actually never knew this was a particular reference. It comes from a legend surrounding Godiva, Countess of Mercia. She lived sometime in the 11th century CE, though records are a bit vague on this. According to a story going back to about the 12th century, she rode through the streets of Coventry nude, accepting her hair to protest attacks her husband placed on some of his tenants. The people of the town knew about the nude ride and closed their windows or otherwise refused to look, except for a man named Thomas. Upon seeing her, the now peeping Tom was struck blind, in some versions by heavenly punishment, in others by the townspeople themselves in a truly old-fashioned example of mob justice. Either way, both parts of the story, the nude riding and a Tom himself, only date back to maybe the 15th or 16th century though some details do, as I said, go back to the 12th. And there's no contemporary notes that exist about the event, especially the Peeping Tom portion, though there are contemporary notations of Lady Godiva's kindness and charity, so it's maybe not a stretch to go from that to nude riding protest. As he turns away from Wednesday, Shadow imagines huge black wings. In Sandman, the issue that introduces Death is entitled The Sound of Her Wings, and within that story, Death gets a pretty similar personification. Has Death come to Lakeside? It's certainly possible, but I think it's just more likely this is Hunin or Munin, one of Wednesday's ravens, flapping overhead, keeping an eye on Shadow. But we can discuss that tomorrow. Maybe. It's a really short page tomorrow to end the Shadow portion of the chapter, so we'll see what we get up to. Get in touch with the show at theworldbeyondthetale at gmail.com or on Twitter at worldbeyondpod. Thank you to Julian Granganage for the use of his version of St. James Infirmary Blues as the show's theme. And thank you for listening. I'll be back tomorrow with another page. And remember, only the gods are real.